You're listening to TWN Champions, episode 38. Champions, arise! Welcome to the Champions Countdown Podcast, where we summon heroes from across space and time to populate our intergalactic museum, or something like that. This is episode 38. I'm Captain Rebecca, and with me is a pair of yellow eyes peering out of a gurgling chasm in the deep. It's Will. I'm what happens when you flush your pets down the toilet. Harrowing. Have you flushed any pets down the toilet today, recently? Please say no. Ever? Not ever. No, but I do think that I'm going to get a bird soon, probably. No, you will not. You will not get a bird. <laughs> you can have a... Okay, here's what you're allowed to do in this household. You are allowed to befriend crows and have them circle the house and be generally friends of the house. But there will be no bird in the house. No birds in the house. Is that a reasonable rule? I don't know. I don't know. I think we might need a, need some birds in the house. We had a bat in the house the other day. Oh, yeah. Was that not enough for you? <laughs> I had to call a man to come get it because I wasn't about to deal with that bat. In general, if there's a bat in your house, probably try to call somebody, right? Yeah, don't I think handle so. it on your own. No, you know, you briefly consider putting on the football helmet and oven mitts and all that good stuff and walking in there, but I don't think so. I'm not... I'm not risking rabies i don't want him to dive at me i don't want something to go wrong yeah there's just a lot there's just, that's a very fragile and tenuous situation we just don't need to be doing anything so. with that poor bat okay so birds in the house bats in the house will also got a bird watching app mm-hmm. i'm trying to collect all the birds in our neighborhood like pokemon if you treat it like that it really feels like the pokemon game where you can you can listen to their calls and figure out which one it is, and then you you log them, and then you get competitive with other birders in the air, air, area. Yeah, then you pit your birds against their bird to <laughs> see right. who's the leader of the bird gym. And my house sparrow's going <laughs> to yeah. whip your tufted titmouse. We got a bunch of meat blue jays. <laughs> We're not even talking about the sky today. What are we talking about? Today we are talking about our personal favorite takes on the sea creature. I will have four, and you will have four, and it'll be a top eight. Yeah, so why are we even talking about birds? Because we, we, we not in the sky today, we in the sea. We down, we down below in the murky depths of the ocean. And you know I like that stuff. I talk about it all the time. I know. That's why I picked this one. Because every time we have to pick a topic, Will's like, I don't know if I can think of a good one. I'm like, fine. We're going to do sea monsters, okay? <laughs> oh, we both do. I don't think if I can think of a good one. Don't act I'm the only one who says I don't think I can think of a good one. I always say I don't think I can think of a good one. But I don't let that stop me. I just talk anyway. <laughs> that's my that's my key. But anyway, so we're we're excited to do sea monsters though because this one is one with like a lot of ancient history, correct? Uh-huh. And most of what we know probably comes from the age of exploration, but you can think of some good obvious examples from ancient history. 
There's the Leviathan from Mesopotamian myth and the Old Testament stories. And I had forgotten or had not uh, ever been told about in Psalms when God killed that multi-headed sea serpent and fed the Hebrews. Do you remember that story? I I miss. I slept through that one in Sunday school. I yeah. don't think we did. They did Moses in the bulrushes, and then that's all the Bible yeah, stories. Yeah, we lowered we the got basket to- a lot. We lowered the <laughs> basket, but we did not. You know what? I think it's safe to say that a lot of adolescents would have stayed in church longer if we would have talked about the more heavy metal parts of the Bible. I know. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I would have paid a lot more attention in Sunday school if we had you stories know, like that. You know, sea serpents, Leviathan, even like Ezekiel seeing the wheel, the, the, the wheel in the sky. Come on now. But like I was saying, most of our sea creature myths come from the 1500s, which in your social studies book is the age of exploration. Do you remember that chapter? Vaguely. (laughs) Vaguely. So this was a time when we could still ask, what are all the animals? (laughs) Do we know all of them? And uh, there were still some left to find. And so uh, we got a lot of crazy sea creature reports from this era because everybody could get out on their boat and start writing stuff down. And you may be thinking about all the maps that say, uh, here be dragons, you know that old thing? Yes. Um, Well, this was written in Latin on one of the oldest globe maps, the Linux globe, dating back to 1510. And there was another one they found around that time that was etched on an ostrich egg. And all maps at this time uh, are lousy with sea creatures. And we kind of know why. It starts with one of the most famous maps, the Carta Marina, which was made by one guy who was the authority on explored territory at the time. And everybody just trusted him and copied his maps and then added their creatures on top of his creatures. <laughs> they were like, surely he wouldn't have made this up. Yeah, well, it was kind of it is kind of weird because you think it's just everybody contributing and everybody just kind of having fun. But it was kind of this guy setting the baseline for all the basic creatures we suspected existed. And his name was Olas Magnus. And he was a history guy and the Catholic Archbishop of Sweden. And he went further north than everybody and did a really good job charting Sweden. And everybody just felt really good about his work. And they were like, we're just going to trust this guy. (laughs) He's got all the good tentacle monsters here. So uh, from what I understand, obviously, uh, a lot of these ancient creatures that they would have seen reported would be like, okay, you saw a whale, you didn't know what it was, or you saw a weird whale, or you saw a particularly big whale, or you saw a dead whale, and it was kind of, you, you know, you're like, well, here be a beast. It's like, okay, well, but. And that makes a lot of sense, because if you have been to the beach in your life, any sort of sea creature or part of a sea creature that washes up on shore looks insane. Like, have you ever seen the skeleton of a horseshoe crab? That looks t- terrible. <laughs> it does look like a monster and not just like, oh no, like it's it's hard to explain science to a bunch of ancient peoples and be like, no, that's just how stuff looks in the ocean. That's very normal. This is like, be sure? <laughs> yes, or even 1500s. <laughs> We've got about 150 years right. before we get any science. Art's sure that that is not a monster um i I learned from wikipedia that unidentified carcasses are often called globsters oh great which is a great word okay and then you know this is something that even happens to this day because a lot of the ocean is yet uncharted like when you get down deep in there there's stuff there we don't really know what it is and um there was a japanese trawler called the zuyo maru off the coast of New England in 1977 because they netted this alleged plesiosaur. 
Oh, right. But then the FBI eventually suggested it was just the decomposing carcass of a basking shark, but not before it was immortalized on a Brazilian postage stamp. <laughs> so I'm just saying we love sea creatures. And I love the FBI had to get involved. Like, <laughs> this is pretty serious. We could be dealing like, with plesiosaurs. We, we can't have y'all thinking that there are plesiosaurs in the waters. And the I Japanese want you to put trawler- down that embezzling case and go investigate this South American <laughs> right? plesiosaur. Right? And, like, the guys with the Japanese crawler are like, come on. Like, we're just trying to have some fun. We're just trying to write a screenplay over here. Give us a break. But yeah, we're we're just uh we have always been into sea creatures and it looks like we have not lost that spark. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the basking shark specifically because that is what was happening all through the 1500s where people were fi- finding uh, pieces of real things and then imagining what creatures they were and the basking shark is the one that all of them got confused by for some reason. And if if you don't know what that is, it's that shark that has the huge, open, gaping mouth and just sort of trolls along with it like that. Um, people always forget about those. Also, um, the oar fish was very confusing. It's a 25-foot-long bony fish that looks like a humongous eel. There's a picture on Wikipedia of like 15 grown men holding it up by the belly on the side. Ew. So you can imagine how that looks like a legitimate sea monster. Uh, and we know the giant squid was the kraken everybody talked about. Manatees were mermaids. Um, and in 18, 1855, so a long time <laughs> I, I later. I do love the theory about manatees and mermaids because there were, isn't, um, I want to say in Celtic lore, they had the Kelpie. That sounds uh-huh. a little bit more like a manatee. But the manatee mermaid connection is very funny because I love to think about a bunch of sailors being like, "We've been a long time at sea." Yeah, it's gonna be like, I don't know what that gray bumpy bottom is, but it's kind of sexy. If Do I we put agree? A, if I put a coconut bra on that manatee, <laughs> it might sing me a sweet song to the rocks. Oh, she looks pretty good, right, y'all? That's a, yeah, it's, I like the blonde manatee. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like you put a seaweed wig on it, it's just it's just beautiful. Like, uh, uh, uh. Her song, her song. That's so it's so sad. We should not make light of sea madness, which has plagued many a sailor. <laughs> but like, goodness gracious, guys, not a mermaid, okay? Um, in 1855, a Danish zoologist, uh, Japetus Strindstrup, proposed that the fabled sea bishop was actually a large squid. For a long time. Um, they had uh, sea bishops on these maps, and they basically um, looked like, um, I don't know, like a squid head on top of something. It was a little suggestive, but they thought it was like a bishop's hat, and they thought it was like a bishop's head. Like, I love the way they thought you were, you're born a bishop, like your head is the shape of a bishop's <laughs> hat. I don't know what they were thinking. So anyway, these gets mixed up with real species. So, um, you know, we don't get the scientific revolution until the 17th century, so there's a lot of room for magic and myth uh, up until then, um, and people just embellished real things and added their own things. And today, the Discovery Channel does not help us with their uh, speculative. I do TV love shows. that they still do that. Like you would think that science would have a firm grasp on society today, but it uh, the vaccine response has shown us that it does not. <laughs> right. Okay. And people would happily believe that a vaccine makes you magnetized. And I guess these are the same people who would believe that there was once a creature called a sharkopath 
that lived in the ancient waters. <laughs> that was whatever. one of the best speculative discovery shows I've seen where they were just like, what if this animal in the ocean? And they had some great, it was like they made up their own like Ninja Turtle and all his powers were on the back of the card. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, but I feel like it was not made clear enough that this is not true. <laughs> oh, remember their, remember their um, speculative uh, monstrous mermaid documentary that a lot of people got confused by? <laughs> It was like a like a scandal almost because they presented it like a real documentary and it was the first time they'd done that. Yeah, and then there were some people who were like, that's pretty sexy, just like with the manatee. <laughs> I think so. So does that catch us up? <laughs> I believe so. So what I know about sea monsters is that they have always fascinated us and uh, they will continue to do so. And what did they represent the unknowable? Let's just go with that. Yeah, I guess we'll figure I guess we'll figure it out. Number eight. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Isolate this picture. No one sees this except the bridge. Done. That looks like some kind of a ship. A spaceship? No such thing. There is now. Captain, if what you said about the age of that rock is true, that ship must be a million years old. Or more. Well, we were just talking about how we found all the animals, but we're actually finding new ones all the time. In the past year, we found a siphonophore, which is a 150-foot-long silly string that lives 0.4 miles underwater, and it spirals out like a, like a big galaxy or something. But that is nothing compared to what we found in May of 1994 when the crew of Sequest found silicon-based life forms in a million-year-old vessel at the bottom of an undersea trench. Okay, now, let, just to clarify, Sequest was fiction, and this part did not happen, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It looked pretty scientific. I saw a lot of keyboards. So, so to be clear, my pick here is the Sequest aliens okay. in, like, the only episode anybody remembers who watched that show. Um, I had to have an underwater alien here because... It's such a fun idea. There are really places on the planet that haven't been explored still. It's true. They could be hiding out there. <laughs> and we know there aren't bishop fish or mermaids, but aliens feel like something just as fantastic that we can be hopeful for in the modern era. It's like just enough real that we can still get the feeling of the 1500s people. So would you want them to find aliens? At the bottom? I would. I would want to find anything that's going to shake up our, our notions of, of our ontological notions of life and self. And, you know, like our place on the planet and our and our place in the universe. Yeah, I would agree. I feel I feel like the whole greater purpose thing is needed a lot. And, and, and I feel like we and I'll talk about this in one of my later picks, but I feel like we need things that shame us and make us not feel like we need to have dominion over the planet because we freaking don't okay you're just a bunch of bipedal idiots who happen to luck into like accidentally inventing a lot of industry over the course of many years well that's a good point too one of my later picks that I, that was a theme i was surprised um to to have show up was that i feel like sea creatures um are very humbling because you 
feel your limitations very strongly when you're in the water and out of your element. And also knowing how smart a lot of the sea creatures are. Yes, and emotionally intelligent. And just because you don't know what a whale is feeling doesn't mean that they're not having a whole (laughs) journey over there, okay? So quit whaling, whalers (laughs) of the 1800s. Don't do it. But yes, okay. So So let me answer your question. There you go. Okay. So let me tell you about these uh, Sequest aliens. So I think you probably know what Sequest is. It's like Star Trek underwater. They very much wanted to be Star Trek underwater. I do remember that. And Jonathan Brandis, rest his soul, um, was a big time like teen heartthrob at the time. And I had a friend who was like very, had a crush on him. Uh, And he was like the weird example of like a teen heartthrob that I think dudes also kind of liked at that age. Like I remember being his age and thinking he was cool, if that makes sense. I don't yeah. know why, um, but I, I liked I liked him a lot for some reason. He didn't have a Wesley Crusher problem. Yeah, but he was the Sequest's whiz kid and he had like two keyboards that he would type on at, the one t- at one time to let you know how good he was at computers. And he had a pet talking dolphin named Darwin. And in this famous episode from the show, they find the ruins of a million-year-old ship and a rubbery naked alien lady escapes onto the sea quest. And she looked like a sea monkey, and her body acting was just great. You would believe she can't understand what they're saying when they were trying to talk to her, and she kind of swayed like a fish. But also, you would have enjoyed this. There were these really... um, terrible 90s production decisions like if you're watching this episode on NBC's Peacock app and you look carefully you can see they gave her makeup like around her uh, eyes there's a blue eyeshadow a little bit (laughs) she's like well before I (laughs) escape into a vessel I gotta make sure I look presentable I know and then she got some like old lady lipstick and they gave her like cracked lips and so she looked like um, like an old dowager sort of drifting through their ship and like sniffing all their computers and ignoring everything everybody was saying to her. Is she, Which is was... basically just living the dream. <laughs> Very cool. I, I would like, I think, to experience a moment where you are deeply unsettling everyone around you, but they're too polite to say anything because of some power you have. Like you are a creature that they don't understand and they're not going to do anything about it, but you can just walk around and smell everything on the ship. She had this bracelet that she would raise at people when she got irritated with them and everybody kind of freaked out. It was probably just a bracelet. but it we probably never, uh, was. If I polish my bracelet, <laughs> take it to David's jewelers. But at the end, the uh, dolphin helps everybody understand she's trying to send a message to her home world and has been for like a million years. And the crew decides not to report their findings and instead send the message to the home world. Can I, can I just interrupt and say this? If I am lost on another planet, I'm not even going to bother trying to contact my home world. Message the home world. Y'all just come find me or not. I don't care. I'm going to be like, why is that always the thing? They're like, I'm trying to contact my home world. I'd be like, nah, I'm good. That's how I would Rebecca's going to turn off her pet finder <laughs> when, she, when she's... <laughs> I will turn off my little spaceship beacon and I'll be like, nah, they can, they can page me if they want to. <laughs> Um, but this alien plot and the government oversight thing should have been the entire show. All the one shots and everything. You know why they did it at the time. But this alien concept and and the government always wanting to know what they had found and everything was really interesting. That yeah. could have worked. And they could have evaded the government. And then the other governments would have gotten involved. And it would be like, who am I loyal to? 
Oh, that would have been a great uh, next season where there's uh, another ship they find doing the exploration because they found out that they're finding alien artifacts down there. Yeah, and then they can be friends or enemies. In the spirit of cooperation and knowledge, the residents of our planet welcome and invite you. Number seven. It has grown many feet in the days we have carried it back, said Tyr. Thor said, careful, it can spit burning black venom. It spat its poison at me, but it missed. That's why we tied its head to the tree like that. It is a child, said Odin. It is still growing. We will send it where it can harm nobody. This is a pick from mythology, but there is a place where you can go and get some good sourcing or stories about this pick. So it is it is a pop culture pick in a way. But I think it would be criminal for us to do this countdown without talking about Jormungandr, the Midgard serpent from Norse mythology. Uh-huh. We knew there was going to be some good metal stuff in here. Yes. Also, a- an excellent uh, concept for albums or songs so uh a good name for your pet snake your pet garter snake you found in the yard that would be a really cute name for him because uh jormungandr is oh and i would call him jormungarder for a garter snake that would be like the cutest thing that anyone ever did or norman garter or something that would be (laughs) the cutest thing that anyone has ever done somebody would give me a garter snake They like boxes, right? They do like boxes. <laughs> they like, they yeah. like cardboard boxes in your house. No, my dad called my sister a garter snake or two a couple of times. I love her her idea of the pet was like, like Dad, get me one. Catch me one. And he'd just go, you know, gar- thin gardening glove, grab one and put it in a box. And she'd have it for a little while and then get bored and he'd just let it out. Now, when you're a kid, that is a cool thing to know because it's like you see one. And the first time you learn, you hear somebody say garter snake. And you know that it's just a little old snake it's not gonna hurt you yeah then you feel cool when it's just like somebody's like there's a snake over there you're like it's okay it's just a garter snake yeah. and so you feel like the crocodile hunter but and then you is- then you try to escalate it and you try to remember is it the red on black get back jack and black on yellow <laughs> okay fella or or is it the know. other way and you forget which one it is you're like i guess he gonna have to bite me we're gonna find out <laughs> don't the- handle snakes in your yard everybody Let's let's have a more <laughs> august history of snakes okay. discussed here. But, but but back to Jormungandr. If you want some good, like, if, if you're just like, you know what? I know of Norse mythology, but I want to know, like, a little bit more. I really actually do recommend Neil Gaiman's book on Norse mythology because he retells a lot of the biggest stories from uh, Norse lore. And it's like actually very fun to listen to as an audiobook because he recorded the audiobook. And I am like lukewarm about Luke, uh, Neil Gaiman on a good day, but I really do, I really did enjoy this. And this was a really good thing to listen to as an audiobook when I was trying to fall asleep, except for when I get to the part about Ragnarok and then that gets too wild. And you're like, okay, well, that's not relaxing. I can't sleep to that. But anyway, okay, so first of all, before we can appreciate how cool the Midgard snake is, Let's talk about the fact that he's one of Loki's kids, all right? We think of Loki as a smug English prep school dude uh-huh. because that's how he's he is in our current in, incarnation of him. But in Norse mythology, Loki is a wild man to say the least, okay? So 
One of his kids is the Midgard snake. Snake goes all the way around the world, that big of a snake. Loki also has... <laughs> I'm thinking... <laughs> Thinking of a your, mom, your mama joke. <laughs> yes, yes, and his mama was a giantess, so oh, really? they would have all applied. Oh, okay, wow, okay. So, so Loki's also got uh, Hell, the Death Goddess, with a half beautiful face, a half dead face. One of his other kids is Fenrir, a big wolf. Uh, Odin's horse is one of Loki's children. It's a whole vibe. Okay, could you imagine if you were the primary school teacher around Midgard, like, oh, great. I got one of Loki's kids in my class. One of the Loki (laughs) kids. Of course. Of course I have them every year. Good luck with that. Yeah, like, it is Go flip your card. Move your color. And and they didn't start off full grown because with Fenrir he like there there is a story about how they went to go collect his kids and and then they started noticing like this wolf is real he's big. He's getting real big. We gotta do something Uh about it. So yeah, yeah. No, well, isn't that a problem with all his kids? Wasn't that the thing with the snake? Wasn't that the problem with the snake? Yeah, he just got he kept getting bigger. So um, this enormous sea snake that's like he he lives in the sea that goes all the way around the world, and he's long enough to encircle the whole world, and then have he holds his tail in his mouth. Okay. He's also sort of there to bedevil Thor. And in the end times, he and Thor will fell each other when Ragnarok happens. And uh, when his tail comes out of his mouth, that's when Ragnarok is triggered. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So just, you know, if you need to know things about a serpent that wraps around the middle middle of the world, I just I just feel like everyone needs to know that. Do we know why it, he holds his tail in his mouth? Why he doesn't just let loose at any time? Well, it okay. I actually find this really interesting. It is described in a very cyclical way. Mm-hmm. Because when Ragnarok happens and it's like destined to happen, everything is destined to happen and Thor will die this way and Odin will die this way and Loki will die this way. Then um, the world all comes right back down again to like the tree of life. Mm-hmm. Like it all shrinks down to that and then it'll start anew, essentially. Uh-huh. So there is something like very like... Uh, cyclical and very destiny oriented about it that I did not realize before. Uh, But yeah, that's, that's something that I didn't realize because just these stories are very kind of cartoonish and very sort of very much like uh, old time Marvel stories, Uh you know, Thor is like a a buffoon in a lot of ways. Like in a, you know, he's very, the characterization that we have of him currently is actually pretty accurate to the lore. And given that, I think it's kind of interesting how there is this whole, like, beautiful acceptance of of endings and beginnings that's kind of woven Mm -hmm. in there. Number six. Everyone's gone by mid-September. Woo! Actually gonna do it, huh? Assume that's that rat. Okay, this pick can be found on the lake, and it feeds on teenagers who are trying to have a good time, man. Uh-oh. This is the oil monster from a Stephen King short story called The Raft. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't know you we I didn't know you were picking that one. <laughs> it was in that 1982 collection. 
of his called Skeleton Crew. And there was a really good version of this story that they dramatized in Creep Show 2. Yes, very memorable. And very gross. <laughs> yes. So I, I, would, I was wondering if you knew this one. I didn't know if you had read that short I, story. I did. I don't, I'm not even sure if I've read this st- short story, but I've seen Creepshow 2 like many a time. Really? Yeah, I don't, yeah. Are there's like a video store rental? Okay, yeah, so interestingly enough. I, oh, good, because I want to talk about some, um, some things from that. So, okay, my uh, best friend growing up, still very dear friend now, the girl who lived next door to my mammal, um, I've like known her my entire life and I would go at her house all the time. And her mother, Wilma, was just one of the sweetest women who ever lived. But mm-hmm. Wilma was the kind of person. who let you get rated R's. <laughs> well, so she was the kind of person who wherever she was out in the world, if she saw something that, you know, she thought that you would like, she would get it. She oh, was like an right. eternal yard sale person. And so Charity had an older brother who liked horror movies. And so Wilma would always be picking up like horror films, like for him. But then, you know, they would just kind of like sit in their like paneled cabinet VHS container. And then often when Charity and I were like, what should we watch? And then it's like, let's watch all of these horror movies. So that is how I watch Creepshow too, like a lot when I was young. But anyway, it was because of Wilma. Okay. My parents would have never let me watch that. Oh, yeah. No, we, we had run of whatever we wanted to do. Okay. So, so yeah. No, I've seen it. It's very gross. Yeah. Um, so, I will set the scene for this because it's a short story. It's pretty simple. Uh, it's the 80s, and four college students who want to party on the lake one more time before winter cruise up in a Camaro, and there's Deke, the jock, Laverne, I think that's the girl who's his cool, trashy girlfriend, Rachel, the pretty smart girl, and Randy, the smart protagonist uh, pre-med guy, okay? Okay. And they get there, and they uh, take their clothes off and swim out to this raft. And in the short story, if I remember correctly, I think they really did go skinny dipping and take their clothes off. But in Creep Show, they just wore bathing suits. They wore bathing suits, although there was some hot and heavy action, and you did see some boobies, if I remember that correctly. That is true. That is true. And But the, the part I wanted to focus on here is in Creep Show is Deke's, the jock's bathing suit. It is hilarious. It is ridiculous. It's this very, very small yellow Speedo, and he is so ridiculously jacked. He looks like the wrestler Carrie Von Eric. Exactly. (laughs) Like he's got perfectly sculpted muscles and like the floppy blonde hair. I mean, he looks like the perfect jock. It is just hysterical. Which makes it all the funnier when he gets attacked by a slime. That is right. Don't leave us here. Don't. I'm fast and I can make it. Gotta go while it's underneath the raft. So, so they notice this gross shimmering oil patch that keeps circling the raft they swam out to, swam out to, and uh, it starts picking them off in creative swim, ways. Swim, swam, swum. That's right. <laughs> and bring, bring, brung. <laughs> so so uh, the oil starts picking them off in creative ways until Randy and Laverne are left and they have to uh, take turns keeping watch at night. But then they have adult times and uh, it pulls Laverne in and um, the story kind of ends abruptly with Randy resigning himself to jump in the water in the short story. Um, in the in the movie, it's a little different. But I think he's able to swim to freedom. He he swims to the shore. But then it gets him. It, yeah, and then they have like a little stinger where you see a no swimming sign or something like that. If I if I remember right. 
And I always liked this one. And not because it's a punish teens for doing bad things story. To me, it was like... But we ought to. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I guess it was so scary because it's like the banality of dangerous things being everywhere, even when it feels like surely not me, surely not here. Uh, but animals and physics do not care if you're a cool teen having a special time or falling in love. And evil oil patches eat people and it will eat you and you are not invincible. And you're not special. And you're not special. Yeah, I guess that's that's what it is. The ocean teaches us that you're not special. Yeah. <laughs> During the winter of 1927-28, officials of the federal government made a strange and secret investigation of certain conditions in the ancient Massachusetts seaport of Innsmouth. The public first learned of it in February, when a vast series of raids and arrests occurred, followed by the deliberate burning and dynamiting, under suitable precautions, of an enormous number of crumbling, worm-eaten, and supposedly empty houses along the abandoned waterfront. Uninquiring souls let this occurrence pass as one of the major clashes in a spasmodic war on liquor. At number five, I give you Town Full of Freaky Deaky Fish Frog People from The Shadow Over Innsmouth, the 1931 novella by H.P. Lovecraft. Cool. Okay. <laughs> it is It is cool. That's they, one of the titles I remember. That's one of the stories... That's, that's one of the ones I would remember. This is one of the ones that really stuck out to me, and it was because of the whole town full of fish people. So this is a story about a young man who travels to a seaport town in Massachusetts, as we all love to do, um, and it's called Innsmouth, because uh, he heard that it's the origin of a beautiful tiara he saw in a museum. But then he gets to the town, and it's decrepit and weird, and it's full of freaky-dicky fish fish frog people this isn't a tiara town <laughs> so scholars say you know some scholars say like and we have we have to address this they say that this well, can manatees be manatees wearing tiaras like hey baby hey baby <laughs> she purting um that this could be sort of read like the subtext being about lovecraft's fear and hatred of miscegenation because of you know we have to of course talk about like yes was he racist yes, da, yes. Da, da, da. <laughs> I'm, so I'm, and i'm not being dismissive I'm, I'm saying that this is one of those things that we do have to address when we talk about him and it's so so obvious that we, we say we end up sure. having to say it all the time right and i mean and maybe that was what was in his heart when he wrote the story i don't know and luckily we don't have to inhabit the values of a person who creates something in order to enjoy the text and we have ways of reckoning with it now you know like hate the racism of the creator love the tentacle monsters that's mm -hmm. kind of how we've been ever since roland bart talked about the death of the author in 1967 meaning is not inside a text like meaning is actively constructed by a reader right like and and these days i think everyone kind of agrees that all of the bonker balls creations of H.P. Lovecraft are delightful and something we want to be part of the sci-fi canon, but we don't, you know, but but we decry all of the maybe vile values that he held held in his heart. Like, uh -huh. who, who knows? And I even, like, I think this is like a fantastic process, too. I think it only just enriches our canon of stories. And, um, like, I love that the show Lovecraft Country exists, for mm -hmm. example, 
um, the showrunner Misha Green basically took that that principle, which is like being a black fan of sci-fi, you feel like these texts that you love don't love you back. And so like, oh, how yeah. can how can we kind of like take this and create something new and even make a commentary on some of the some of those issues by using this beautiful, weird world? And so like, they definitely have done that. I don't know if they're picked up for season two, but I think it's awesome that it exists, right? Like that's a really cool way that we have now of reckoning with old creators that we're not crazy about, mm-hmm. you know, we're, a, a, as a people. And so for that reason, I, I feel okay about saying like, well, let's talk about specifically some of these stories that Lovecraft wrote, especially this one was kind of like, he, he kind of copied a few other stories that were popular at the time. Cause I think everybody was just kind of like, let's talk about weird fish people. Okay. It, was, it was just, kind of, there, there were some other sort of like adventure stories where there were like fish people. But in this story in particular, sea bishops in that town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it starts off with a young man trying to book a bus ticket. And the agent was like, do you really want to go to Innsmouth? Cause the town is a crap hole. People are weird. And they describe multiple times the Innsmouth look that everyone has. Queer, narrow heads with flat noses and bulgy, starey eyes that never seem to shut. And their skin ain't quite right. This is the bus agent talking to mm-hmm. him. Rough and scabby. The sides of their necks are all shriveled or creased up. They get bald, too. Very young. And so, like, I'm just loving this mental image of, like, just this, this town full of creeps. Oily, yeah. fishy creeps. And then um, he gets stranded there. When his bus breaks down is being repaired, and he learns all the freaky deaky history of Innsmouth from an old timer named Zadok Allen. Turn turns out that the source of all the trouble is a reef all the, off the coast of the town, called the Devil's Reef. Gate to hell, sheer drop down to a bottom, no sound and line can touch. And a couple of enterprising sailors figured out that they could start sacrificing people to some kind of god things that lived under the sea. And in return, they would get trinkets. So that's where our tiara came from. Okay. So I love this. This is just like, this is just such a wonderful mental image. Imagine some dudes in town, like in our town where we live, they just show up all of a sudden. They went to Putin Bay and then here they come back and they've got all the fish they could catch bracelets and armlets and head rigs made out of a queer kind of gold and covered with pictures of monsters sort of fish frogs or frog-like fishers that was drawn in all kinds of positions like they was human beings so basically a death cult but you get awesome jewelry and also you turn into an immortal fish man (laughs) so this story has everything it has creepy people it has old timers telling stories which i love it has descriptions of freaky jewelry that you can get if you sacrifice your loved ones to the deep ones and i love that the uh the ancient mystical deep ones had to kind of have a sense of the kind of stupid uh stuff that the town likes like they like what are a bunch of like give them all those bowling alley prizes that they're gonna want <laughs> yeah they're like it's like they're bobbing it's like like bobbing for apples and they come up and they've got like a handful of like a gold chain and they're like treasure <laughs> and the deep ones are like rolling their eyes they're like whatever and they just like, keep sending us people for sacrifices and we'll be placated and they were and then also this story really makes me want to go to new england um, we have friends in New England, and I want to go visit them and then also pay homage to the fish people of Innsmouth. <laughs> See all our friends with their 
creased up necks. <laughs> with their creased up necks and their weird heads. Yes. <laughs> All my friends with their eyes that don't blink. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Staring at us with their flat eyes. They think they're better than us with their tiaras. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go visit my friends and get me their tiaras. <laughs> Belongs to me and my house. Clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. This one is from a movie about a woman who will never get back her security deposit. That's what Rebecca said near the end of the movie we watched last night when this woman's bathroom was full of water. And everything in this movie looks incredible, but it's lousy with mildew and mold. This is the amphibian man from the 2017 film, The Shape of Water. What a ride. <laughs> Directed by Guillermo del Toro, who wrote it with Vanessa Taylor. And it stars a bunch of fantastic actors, including Doug Jones, who is an excellent Star Trek alien and the body actor for every beautiful monster. Uh, Yeah, and I just feel like at this point, Guillermo del Toro is just like... Can, is there a suit? Can Doug come over and just put on this suit? <laughs> Ever since I found that he was also Abe Sapien, and yeah. it was basically the same suit almost. It really was. It was very it similar. It was very, very... It's like, look, Doug is his muse. Like, that's his... He must be. It's his monster. I'm not saying that he's not, like, a beautiful actor, but I'm just saying, like, okay, you know how... We got that tall dude to play Chewbacca in the new Star uh -huh. Wars films, and this is like a whole new world for him. It's like, look, you're the new Chewbacca because you're a tall guy who can be in the costume. Just, I feel like we should do that for other gangly actors so that Doug <laughs> Jones does not take all those roles. You're worried about Doug getting all the roles. He is. He's getting all the gangly roles. He's so good. You just, it's, it's, <laughs> Doug, share with other people, okay? Maybe some <laughs> other people want to be gangle monsters in a suit. But anyway, no, The Shape of Water. I, it, it was a delightful movie, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Uh, and one of the things I think we we'll have to talk about, it was also a really sweet, really moving romance. And that was surprising, because I thought it was going to be like uh, a drawn-out, slow build-up to the main lady saying, I think I'm in love with the amphibian man. But that's not how it worked at all. It's actually got a really cool kind of 60s sci-fi plot thing going on. Almost almost felt like the Fallout games or something. Yeah. Um, because the main character and her buddy work as custodial staff for a secret research lab um, during the Cold War. And it's pretty funny. Um, and by setting the story in like this super stylized 60s Cold War space race kind of thing, they're able to focus on the story while subtly ending up saying stuff about finding common humanity or the lack of humanity in everybody, regardless of, you know, what external things you've got going on, whether you're American or Russian or, um, 
you know, you have this main uh, character's disability or you don't have it or you're an amphibian man or you're um, a homo <laughs> sapien. Um, you That's know, right. It, it, they, they just did a, a, a great job with that without hitting you over the head with it. But I will talk more about the amphibian man. As we said, he's Doug Jones and he looks exactly like Abe Sapien, but more green. And he has more of like the angry frill that comes out when he's mad. Anything else you would say about how he looks or moves or anything? Maybe this was a deliberate choice, but I was kind of taken aback by how much he moved like a person. Like there oh, was there wasn't any like shimmying, like fish shimmying like you think you would do. Like there wasn't any languid arm movements. I just thought he like pretty much walked like a dude. Well, that had to be on purpose cuz you know he's not like just making a half decision there. Well, in the apartments he did kind of do a lot of like crouch walking and stuff, kind of kind of like a crab or something. Now, can I just pose the question, is it possible that we just assume that Doug Jones is a brilliant physical actor? And he's not and he's an just... ancient sea creature. <laughs> <sighs> or, you know, like he's not, whatever. What, but yeah, like I, I, I don't know. So the Kelpians from Star Trek that he plays, I think they're more like a horse type. Um, race, so I don't think he's necessarily a sea creature. Uh, so I don't know. That's he supposed to could... be a horse. The yeah. Kelpians with the yeah, ganglia. Or, or, yeah, or sort with of the like threat ganglia. Mm-hmm. Are they sort of like deer? Um, that's why he's got like eyes kind of on the side of his head. He's sort of like like that. Like oh, a, like a space deer. Yeah, like a space deer. I think. <gasps> Note to self: design a shirt with a space deer. <laughs> Maybe they he, he was moving more human because they wanted to emphasize the humanity. That's what him. I think. Okay. That's what I think. He he had to have been thinking about that because like when he plays Saru on Star Trek, he does a lot of the swaying while he walks and he um sort of walks like he's on hooves and stuff. So he he had to have been thinking about yes, that. Yes, I'm sure he was. And I guess the other thing to say was that you and I were discussing how this movie was so strange that you know, by avoiding cliche, it was actually a lot more romantic and moving because it didn't take you out of it because they're not like um, hitting things on a checklist. It seemed like a very specific story about the specific relationship between those two people. And yeah. it, it really worked that, for that reason, I think. Yeah, and I think we were expecting, you know, there are some beats that you have to hit in a screenplay where it's like, the initial offering, the initial rejection, the initial warm up, like the, you know, mm-hmm. I knew that there were beats that they had to hit, but the story did not go in the place that I was necessarily expecting it to. And so I didn't feel like I was watching a rom-com No, <laughs> or like a, you know, any, it felt a lot like a, like a uh, sci-fi comic book or something. Um, it was, it was, it was so cool. And I was thinking, well, why didn't it win? Best screenplay at the Oscars, but that was the year that um, Jordan Peele wrote Get Out. So I'm like, all right, tough year. (laughs) (laughs) That was a tough year, yeah. And people were like, it's a hard sell when you learn out, when you learn that they fall in love. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, I probably should have gotten that out of the way at the beginning because the whole time I'm talking about, like, is that the one where she does it with the fish man? Uh, yes. Yes, and, but it's not like you see it. There's not a take my breath away scene like in Top Gun. And they do it so well and things happen uh, so quickly and they acknowledge everything you're thinking and uh, have fun with it in the way you would have fun with it. And so it's just done perfectly. It's so good. Number three. 
You're oversimplified. You more than repaid him, many times over. Why, a good part of his present position at the Institute is due to your valuable research. And another thing. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention Gilman from the 1954 The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, is that his name? Gilman? His name is Gilman. Oh. That's the creature's name. Yeah, see? Oh, that'd be another good name for a pet. Gilman, yeah. I've already forgot about Jormengarder. <laughs> so cute. I'm just, I'm dying. I still love that. Oh, also, this is for all of our friends out there who are humanities people like me and we don't know from the earth. A lagoon is like the ocean got separated by like a reef and then like it's inland a little bit, but it's like the ocean water, but it's like separated by a physical natural barrier. Oh, so that water is just rank with bacteria and stuff. Probably. And Gilman. Okay. <laughs> So this is an interesting one because the character design is what sticks around with this. This is an example of character design that we've all fallen in love with and still has tremendous influence on today because uh, the, the, the asset from The Shape of Water and Abe Sapien and all of them, they look a whole lot like the original Gilman costume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same basic design, yeah. you know. So this had such an impact on um, costume design. But when you really get down to it, the film itself is pretty mad by today's standards. It was wildly successful at the time, though, because it was shot in 3D. And um, there are a whole lot of underwater sequences. So this was for a 3D film audience. Oh. And so that's what everybody loved. That's why there are these extended sequences of our leading lady, like, swimming languidly through the water and oh, stuff. Oh, we get to swim with her. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, I'm here. Yeah, it's almost as good as a manatee, but... <laughs> She's a little less lumpier. It was wildly successful at the time, and then, of course, each subsequent... Um, sequel got less popular which is like just the same way as now as it was back then and also 3d as a gimmick was kind of tapering off by the time we got to the creature walks among us which is the third film in this uh franchise so basically this is just a very boring film about a bunch of science dudes looking to complete a fossil because they found a sea creature paw and they're looking for that link between humanity and fish mm -hmm. you know and by God, they've found a lot more than they bargained for when Gilman starts killing all the people in this expedition one by one because they're bringing their lap boat into his lagoon. And then also, he falls in love with the lady a little bit, but all he does is carry her into a cave and then other people find her and it's fine. Talk about the bathing suits. <laughs> well, so that's she, all. That's what I remember. Remember Gilman? I remember bathing suits. She's she's got a very standard 1950s white bathing suit that has like the big thick panel around the middle <laughs> and like the panel that goes over your leg a little bit like a skirt. Okay, and how about the dudes? Um, some swim trunks galore and not great physiques because okay. when you were a man in Hollywood, it didn't matter what you looked like. Like, he's a man of science. He can be paunchy. And he carries a harpoon gun. One guy does have a harpoon gun. Like, I yeah. like that. Yeah, well, he gets killed, I think. Okay. Anyway, deservedly so. Because I feel like Gilman is a tragic figure, and you should leave him alone. Uh-huh. All right? 
over the course of these films, he's subject to worse and worse things in the name of civilization. Because eventually he gets captured. He gets put in like a sea world thing. Not in this film, not Mm -hmm. in the first one, but it does happen. And so he inverts the trope of this unknown depth of the sea kind of thing because um, instead of like, okay, the sea houses mysteries we cannot understand, this is like, we are men and we must have mastery over everything on the earth. And then he's a tragic figure because he just got caught in the middle. He's just trying to swim in his lagoon and look at pretty ladies. Uh You know, what did he do? And then just a little bit of trivia... The Gilman costume was designed by a massive team of makeup artists, and it was truly a full-body costume. So that was where this movie was really standing out, even amongst the universal monsters. When you watch the original Wolfman film, it's clearly just a dude, you know, with some makeup on. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Lon Chaney was like, I'm not... I'm not Doug Jones, okay? I'm not going to sit in this chair and have stuff applied to me and sweat my butt off in a big costume. It might costume. be a little like a dog, and I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> Basically, more or less. He's like, I got to get home in time for dinner. But um, the Gilman costume was different, and it did truly look alien on screen because it was every inch of his body was completely covered and the gills moved when he breathed and stuff like that. His eyes were like a little expressionless because I mean, there were limitations. They couldn't make these incredible mechanical things that we could make today, but uh, couldn't even do it in the (laughs) nineties. Well, that's true. And then of course they didn't have CG to like polish, polish him up or whatever. But for the time, especially like it was just such a well-designed look that we still think fondly about him. I mean, we've got Gilman hanging as a canvas in our bathroom <laughs> right now. It, the the theme is sea monsters in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's not out of nowhere. It does make sense. Yeah, you know, sometimes when I take a shower, I've, that uh, like sea monster twall pattern on the shower curtain, I, I feel like, uh, oh, I think I could like tell myself like I see a monster pattern there. Like, oh yeah, Rebecca bought a monster twall thing. This is not <laughs> creative of me. It really is there. <laughs> I like the monsters with eyelashes. <laughs> Number two. You don't think about Mario being very scary, even though those games have haunted houses and ghosts, and there's the whole Luigi's Mansion thing. But there is one Mario creature that will chill you to the bone, and he lives at the bottom of Jolly Roger Bay... This is Yunagi the Eel, who visited his terror upon us in Mario 64, and then pretty much every Mario game after that. Okay. And I'm not familiar, because I did not play those Marios. Uh Uh-huh. But I think we could have a common touch point when we talk about water levels being oh, scary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people talk about them being hard, but I, I think it's I think it's more that they're scary and we just have a lot of tension in them because... Yes, they stress us out. Yeah. It's not particularly any more challenging than any other challenge in a game, but it stresses you out in a way. Yeah. Uh, the idea that you might have to get air. Do I have enough air? Will I have something that covers up the surface now that was really revolutionary game making when sonic the hedgehog did the first water level where you had to breathe the bubbles of air yeah that was stressful it really was <laughs> it was i think it was chemical zone and then the the music too the music when you started to run out of air that was horrible but anyway yeah water levels are stressful they are 
Um, if you're our age or a little younger, I think you'll remember the first time you saw this eel I'm talking about. This this was, so Mario 64 was the first 3D Mario game, and this is the third course, Jolly Roger Bay. And in that course, you swim down to a sunken ship, and this glassy-eyed eel with pointy teeth comes oozing out between the planks, and he is just massive. I mean, he's just huge, and there's nothing else like him in the game. There's never been anything like him before in those games. And you just have so many questions, like, is he supposed to be here? Was I supposed to find this? Uh, and it was very upsetting. He had a lot more detail uh, when they uh, render him in the later games, and it got to be more of a common enemy. But I think he's scariest here because he doesn't belong. And he looks so crude, too, because it's all these um, uh, polygons. And he just looks he just looks so ugly and awful. And <laughs> so, so how? what's the secret to defeating him? You don't. Uh. And that's part of the mystery, too, because you wonder, like, can he eat me? Is he just decoration? Um, if I touch him, will I get hurt? And if I remember, that's how it worked. I don't think they designed it so he could eat you, but I think you can't touch him. And I think there was a challenge later, like he had one of the stars on his tail you had to grab without him, without touching him or something oh, like that. Oh, that's horrible. And that's like real <laughs> sea creatures, because yeah, you don't want to yeah. be touching a jellyfish or, you know, lots of those gross dudes. Well, yeah, I was trying to think of other enemies that were as viscerally upsetting, um... I was thinking maybe the Nintendo Total Recall guys that will show up if you spend too long standing still. They were pretty scary. Uh, maybe the Banshees from Mass Effect. What, can you think of other ones that you just hated when you saw them on the screen? Like that are just like like re repugnant to you. Repugnant or or scary. Well, I have to say, like this this is these are later games, and everyone knows how much I love the Fallout franchise. The ghouls in the earlier ones specifically are so upsetting when they come running up to you because they're uh -huh. like, and it's horrible, but I love it. It's horrible. And I love it so much. <laughs> and I'm like, I will train all of my stealth as much as I can. So I can pick them off one by one rather than have them go. They're too fast for you to deal with. Yeah. And they come running up to you. And then when they get up to you and touch you, you're like, oh, and, they're all quit. and they're all wiggly. I love them though. Like I love how gross they are. Well, I was not alone thinking of this about this about this eel uh, because I saw every video on YouTube was full of people saying the same thing. And I'll, I hear a few a few comments. One person says in all caps, "This thing and the piano gave me so many nightmares." <laughs> uh, somebody said, "OMG, my cousin Justin and I used to be screaming when we saw this stupid eel." <laughs> Funny how you grow up and you're like, "Wow, that used to scare me." Mayo, it's still one of my favorite childhood memories. And then somebody says, God, eel giving me nightmares when I was six. It made me pee myself in bed. <laughs> and, and then finally, who else had nightmares of the eel and the killer piano? So I had to look up this piano thing. Did it have, he had like theme music and it was. It was unrelated. It was another area where there's this piano. If you get too close, you know, the, the, the top of it that flips up starts bouncing up and down like a mouth and trying to eat oh, you. Oh, that is bad. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that being bad. Yeah. Honorable mentions. All right. I'm be clever here and I'm going to put uh, Jason who lived the bottom of that lake. 
oh, okay, fine. Because he kind of he kind of is, because that's his home. He is sort of. A he sa- lives there. He's kind of like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay, well, if you're gonna give him, I'm gonna say Jar Jar Binks is a sea monster. <laughs> so. They're amphibians. It counts. No. But anyway, who else? Who else you got? Uh, I was just gonna say the real life sea snake. That thing that's super, super, super poisonous. I mean, that is a sea monster. That is very scary. It definitely is. I also would give a shout out to the three sentient sharks from Deep Blue Sea. Uh-huh. Uh huh. We already talked about Abe Sapien. He's uh-huh. not a monster. And the NTIs from James Cameron's The Abyss, which I refused to watch because I refused to indulge James Cameron, even though the movie came out in 1989 and he won't know I watched it. I do really like that movie. And I know you're like, Ed Harris is in everything. Ed Harris is great in it. It's a really good movie. Really good My aliens. My sister has a thing about Ed I Harris. I love that ship in that movie. We're just like, whenever Ed Harris shows up, she's just like annoyed. She's like, Ugh. It's too generic for her? I don't know. It's just like, no, well, there's Ed Harris again. There he is. And it's more like, just like, there he is. Okay, Ed Harris. And I kind of get it. Like, I kind of feel the vibe. Oh, uh, we talked about uh, the freaky deaky mermaid in the lighthouse. Yeah. We yeah. like her. An excellent mermaid. Yeah. Okay, who's the number one sea monster of all time? Number one. Y'all knew it was coming. There's no way it couldn't be number one. And I'm talking about my girl Ursula. Yeah. The sea witch. Yeah. From 1989's The Little Mermaid. Come in. Come in, my child. We mustn't lurk in doorways. It's rude. One might question your upbringing. <laughs> now, then, you're here because you have a thing for this human, this uh, prince fellow. Not that I blame you. All right. So first of all, before I tell you what I really like about Ursula, this is a good discussion mm-hmm. to be had. Let's just talk about her character design. Uh-huh. Um, I actually watched Little Mermaid for the first time in my entire life last night, thanks to my brother-in-law's Disney Plus login. Shout out. Uh, (laughs) I like that one. I think that's a really good movie. My sister and I have also talked about this. Like, we weren't Disney kids really growing up. Mm -hmm. But it's like, even if it doesn't resonate with you emotionally, like, what Disney princess are you? Mm -hmm. You can't deny that these movies hit every beat. And, like, beautifully. Of course they do. Like, they're all works of art. And for anybody to say, look, Disney's stupid. Like, you're being willfully ignorant. Like, they're scientifically... Good, you know uh-huh. what I mean. Like you can't, you can't on Disney. I mean, like you can for other things, but not for like the quality of their storytelling. Like, duh. So the character design of Ursula, like I guess we could all just first of all agree that she is one of the villains who make the whole film, and the film without her is dull and lifeless. And I care very little about the problems of everyone else in the film. Minus Ursula. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like, the she's my anchoring character. Well, but, well, I feel for like when King Triton and Sebastian are trying to put on that really cool, like show-stopping number at the beginning and Ariel just flaky and doesn't show up. I was so upset. <laughs> like a, such a good show. Such a good show. It was such a good show. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we'll, we'll talk about how we can't relate to Ariel in okay. a moment. But first of all, like just... The, Sebastian's my man. He's I love him. I like Sebastian too. Okay. So the, the the beauty of the animation, you see Ursula in so many different forms during the whole film, The Little Mermaid. And I feel like people never talk about this, but 
like because I just I don't know it surprised me that there's a plot point where uh, you know Ursula has Ariel's voice in a locket around mm-hmm. her neck, right? Well, so Ursula disguises herself as a hot babe <laughs> with the locket on, comes wading out of the sea, going. Ah. And so, like, Prince Eric falls in love with her because he thinks, oh, it's the owner of that beautiful voice I heard. Uh He hastily sets up a wedding because he's an impulsive moron. (laughs) And Ursula, disguised as a hot babe with long brown hair, but with a wicked awesome face, is about to get married to this dude. And we never talk about that. (laughs) They have a wedding. They have a wedding. A full-on wedding. And the scene in the bit where Ursula's disguise is blown and she her tentacles pop out from under the wedding dress, that's glorious. Yeah, that's cool. This is every woman's dream. It's just like, finally! <laughs> <laughs> ah, too late now. You said I'd do. <laughs> that's right. Here we are. I, also, I just love the hot version of Ursula. I just think that's great. And I don't know why I don't see more Disney bounders cosplaying that. I just feel like that's a hilarious gimmick to do it. And if I ever was in a position to do a Halloween costume of, of such a thing, I, I just really feel like that would be a good one. Mm-hmm. I just feel like that's like that's not given enough love. Can you do that? My dear sweet child, that's what I do. It's what I live for. So we've talked about this before, why we love a good villain. And we've talked about it's the fact that they have a long-term plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ariel is impulsive and dumb. She's like, oh, look, there's a boy. I love him. I'm in love with him. Like, I want to go where the people are. I want legs, Dad. I don't want to be in the show undersea. Ariel is an impulsive idiot. And as we learned, so is Eric, who is willing to make a whole freaking wedding based around some lady who wades up out of the water going, ah. Yeah, we don't know what the... Pickens look like in his town though they could be they're probably slim they could be Innsmouth people they could be manatees <laughs> we don't know they've all got the Innsmouth look yeah but it's like Ursula is the oh, only man, one that'd be a great like fashion catalog there the Innsmouth look that'd be a great name for a catalog and it'd be like beautiful bracelets but other than that you're just wearing really grimy overalls oh, yeah but they would sell all the kinds of trinkets you get for the sacrifices. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so that's like funny. beautiful golden bracelets, but then like you're also just wearing like an old muddy jumpsuit. <laughs> and then waiters. Yeah. But then you don't need the waiters because you become a fish person. I don't know how it works. But anyway, Ursula's making plans. Yeah. She has a long term plan. She has a clever plan. And for a brief, beautiful moment, her plans come to fruition. And I think that if we, as viewers of stupid movies, have to accept that happily ever after means anything, then I think we equally must accept the moment where Ursula has it all, where she has Triton's trident, and she is coming up out of the sea big as a behemoth, Mm -hmm. and the waves are answering her calls. If we have to accept that Ariel and Eric, Eric is his name, right? Mm -hmm. He's, He's so boring, I don't care. If we have to accept that their magical kiss of their wedding, if we have to accept that as a moment that gets frozen in time, then I get to freeze the moment where Ursula's dreams come true because she's the best. She had a plan. She made it happen. She had the best song. We all know Under the Sea is a jam, Mm -hmm. but other than that, Mm -hmm. The Little Mermaid is a very musically weak film. Kiss the Girl, their romance, the song about the... 
I don't even know what it's called. I don't know. I like that one. You like Kiss the Girl? Yeah. I like that one. I like what Sebastian uh, sings. He's like a, like a soul singer at the beginning. Oh my god! I like god. when he I like when he arranges all the stuff. It like, well, that's cute, yeah, but yeah. the song is not good. I mean, somebody had to go in the recording studio and just like yeah. Nail but imagine you're Sebastian. You're like you about to set up some smooth some smooth stuff. Well, Sebastian deserves all the credit. Okay, okay, uh, all okay. right. Sebastian did a great job okay. on the song. You're correct. But <laughs> poor unfortunate souls. Is yeah, it's like, a great song. Is maybe the best like I, Disney you song. You know, we ever. all everybody always says Ursula is the best, but you know, when I had to go back and look at the clips for this or whatever, she's just like every line she does is so good. We're, like when Ariel first comes in her little um, witch cave or whatever, and then she uh, says something about you know, don't lurk in the doorway, it's rude, and she has her hand on her hip, but she like is just floating down from her little perch with her hand on yes. her hip, like dang, that is cool. And I love all of the care with the animation. Like I love. Her, you know, she's got her her bodice. Yeah, her bosoms jiggle a little bit as they would. That's hilarious. I love it. I love the charisma of her body carriage. Yeah. I think it's amazing, and it's like she shows up in the halfway point of the film because I looked at the the oh. little dot, and I'm like, thank God. You know, because I was getting real fed up with Ariel and her dingle hopper and all that. <laughs> no, we want to see Ursula. Oh, no, that's not it. Mm-hmm. That's not it, Will, because you know how this is just tie everything up in a neat, beautiful little bow. We're always trying to be like, okay, who on Deep Space Nine was in this movie? Oh, let me think. Let me think. Let me... Oh, did I hear you yell last night, Rene Auberginois? Yes, I did. Yes, you did. And what was he? He was Louis, the French chef. Oh. <laughs> and I cut off their head. They don't care because they're dead. Yeah. Oh so man, that was that, that was, was a good song. That was a good song. Those lyrics were very good. Yes, that was cute. But again, I just I I think it's a very I think it's a very musically strong. But maybe it's because <laughs> we sang it a lot. I don't know, but probably so. I, so good. Okay. I was so excited though, because you know we always trying to be, find who who from Deep Space Nine was on various yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor unfortunate souls in pain. All right, so that was an amazing list, and we understand sea monsters now, or maybe we don't, but we just enjoy them. I would like to see an all DS9 cast of Little Mermaid where Avery Brooks is King Triton. Okay. And uh, Wynn, the bishop lady who you just hate, she'd be a great Ursula. Um, oh, okay. Do we have like a gender flipped Ariel where Jake Sisko is like the Ariel? Oh, uh, I guess. I guess. And and what is Nog Flounder? <laughs> 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 just why <sighs> that is really funny that is really funny I, I well I think I'm. it's safe to say that you were the only person who wants to see that but who knows Worf is like Sebastian alright sure yeah because Sebastian just eternally annoyed but he gets dragged along on adventures that's very much okay. Worf no that's Odo oh okay Odo would be Sebastian I think well everyone you can tell us who's <laughs> <laughs> So, but anyway, if you have thoughts on this list or your own suggestions, email rumors at thewizardsnightshirt.com or hit us up on social media and we might share some of your thoughts on the next episode. Will, where can people follow us? You can mostly find us on Twitter. What's that Twitter thing? At wizardsnspod. But yes. we might start tweeting from at Curdle Holler. Yeah. We'll let you know. Yes. Um... 
And you can go to thewizardsnightshirt.com to find out about this show and our other shows like Colonel Holler, our original Halloween comedy series, which we are writing right now, uh, as well as a complete archive of our Masters of the Universe review show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time when we call forth new champions. Tell of a hero facing down fears and cutting down foes. There's no resemblance to what you know when your own deeds feel humble and